0: Good morning, I'm Leslie Thatcher, 8.06 on this Tuesday, it's February 20th, we've got 30 degrees here in Old Town, we still have some snow showers coming down. On the phone with us from the ABC Forecast Center, meteorologist Thomas Giboy, good morning.
1: Warren Leslie happy Tuesday to you and yeah we are still seeing some snow snow showers around Park City and we're also seeing some reduced visibility for portions of the Wasatch back so for anybody hitting the road just be prepared for some slushy conditions and just really not the best driving conditions as you head out the door this morning just a good idea to build an extra five to ten minutes just in case and as we go through today we'll be looking at more showers continuing it's not going to be one of those where it's likely going to be non-stop wet weather all the time but we could see multiple rounds of wet weather through the morning mainly going to be snow but as we move into this afternoon thanks to our southwesterly flow there is a chance that we see that daytime high climb to around 40 degrees in Park City which if that's the case then there is a chance that we could see our snow showers become a little bit more of a wintry mix but if the snow showers stick around through the morning and kind of help keep that temperature down then there's a better chance that we stay snow most of the day while down in Heber a good chance that we do eventually see a transition over to rain as that daytime high down in Heber could top out right around 45 degrees So as we go through today, we'll continue to see those scattered showers. Then into tonight, we'll likely see any rain become snow once again as the overnight lows will be falling to around 30 degrees throughout the back. And really the chance for snow will increase as we move into tonight as the meat of the system that's driving all of this will eventually work its way in by tomorrow. So today you can think of about a 60% chance at any point today wet weather can find you 70% chance as we move into tonight and then Wednesday as the core of the low pressure moves in roughly a 90% chance of snow through the day and it'll also be just a fraction cooler thanks to a weak front working its way through so a daytime high tomorrow in Park City will be right around 35 degrees meaning we're mainly going to stick with snow showers then on Wednesday night the overnight low drops to 25 however from Wednesday night to Thursday chance for snow will gradually go down as the low pressure begins to pull away. Still roughly a one in three chance of seeing snow through Thursday but looks like as we go from tonight into tomorrow that's going to be that best potential. Then from Wednesday night into Thursday that chance will gradually go down as that temperature on Thursday will also top out around 35 degrees. And between now and Thursday we are likely looking at anywhere between two to eight inches in Park City itself and the reason why we have a wide range Is simply because of the temperature difference if we are able to achieve the 40s today and see that change over to snow or change over to rain then we're obviously not going to see as much but if it sticks with straight snow then we could be talking about healthy accumulations in park city itself while the mountains will obviously do better especially above 7000 feet where we could still see an additional foot plus of snow more powder on the way for sure then for friday and the saturday we'll finally see calmer conditions settle in at the end of the work week to the beginning of the weekend mostly sunny skies both days daytime highs climbing back to the low and mid 40s above our seasonal averages but as quickly as we get a quiet stretch of weather that wet weather potential likely increases on sunday a slight chance with a daytime high in the low 40s and then by monday that's when we'll likely to see our next best chance as snow looks likely with a daytime high in the upper 30s leslie
0: okay thomas thanks so much you're welcome and with a look in the backcountry and the fun with us from the utah avalanche center we have forecaster dave kelly good morning dave
2: good morning leslie how are you doing great yeah, thanks for today. We're looking at an overall considerable avalanche danger at upper elevations where people are likely to trigger wind drifted snow avalanches near ridgetops and on the leeward side of terrain features. Um, these wind drifts may be covered over by last night's new snow. They will be hard to see and could break above backcountry travelers. Uh, Made and low elevation slopes have a moderate avalanche danger um, and there's a thin layer of facets associated with a crust that's now buried one to two feet deep. And we've been seeing avalanches triggered on this layer, primarily on east, southeast and west facing aspects. Um, What makes this unique is that it's occurring on aspects that we would normally consider safer terrain, particularly during um, stormy time periods. And so we're recommending that people carefully evaluate the snowpack and use cautious route finding and conservative decision making. Um, Your best bet is to travel on terrain less than 30 degrees in steepness. Yeah. As you heard, the um, rain line is up at 7,500 feet. And so we're forecasting some wet snow problems down in lower elevations.
0: Mm. Yeah, so that crust, I have felt it. Uh, It does it does it kind of go away? Does it get or is it just kind of there the rest of the season?
2: No, it'll eventually go away. We've had other years in the past where we've had this crust that's been buried within the snowpack Um, last year. Those avalanches stuck around for about eight days before we stopped seeing avalanche activity on that layer. Um, and at this point, we're about five days into it. And with warmer temperatures, high winds, and more snow, um, as soon as we get out of the storm cycle, we'll be looking to see if that crust is gone.
0: Okay, and I think it was the sun, though, that caused the crust, at least where I was scanned. So interesting.
2: Yeah, it could be like sun crust in mm-hmm. a lot of places. On west-facing slopes, we found a rime crust, which is like a very thin rain-style crust.
0: Yeah. Okay, Dave, thank you.
2: Yeah. Thank you so much.
0: Stay tuned. Coming up, I'll be checking in with Wasatch County manager Dustin Graybaugh with a preview of this week's County Council meeting. KUER reporter Sage Miller with an update on the Utah legislature and finally Recycle Utah director Carolyn Warr reporting on just how much was recycled last year. Resource uh, Park City reporting five inches of new snow in the last 24 hours, a 94-inch base, 41 lifts uh Open with 334 runs, 128 of those groomed. 21 lifts over at uh, Deer Valley with 102 runs, 64 of those groomed. They're reporting eight inches of new snow. Not a good situation in our Nordic Trails area, at least in Round Valley and Wasatch um, County. The trail's too soft, they're saying, for. mountain biking fat biking so please give them a break today and please stay off with your feet it's just too soft you're going to post hole them and it's just going to ruin the trail for the rest of the season so if you do want to get out put on a pair of snowshoes and at least help pack it down uh white pine touring saying that they're going to get out and pack but not groom the uh, three the five the armstrong loop and eventually out to the farm Again, should be pretty good conditions, but make sure you've got some wax on your ski or you're not going anywhere. Taking a look at some local news now. Park City firefighters worked overnight in historic Old Town. They responded to a call at the 1100 block of Park Avenue about 3 a.m. this morning. Nearby residents sent KPCW pictures of at least two fire trucks and several police units on scene in front of a home and reported that there was a lot of smoke. Park City Fire District Marshal Mike Owens told KPCW the fire was contained to a barbecue. No one was displaced from the home and there were no injuries. You can see those photos online at kpcw.org. And the Park City Council is not renewing funding for the city's light deed restriction program. Instead, looking at other ways to increase affordable housing in town. KPCW's Parker Malatesta reports.
3: Park City's Housing Department copied the program after seeing similar models succeed in sister cities like Vail, Truckee, and Sedona. The program aims to increase the housing stock for locals by compensating homeowners who agree to have a full-time resident in the home or a renter for no less than a six-month lease. The program can also be used as down payment assistance for prospective home buyers, which is why Charles Perlman applied.
2: Um, I purchased a single-family home um, in Prospector neighborhood. and plan to live here for many years and raise a family here and this program helped that come true for me. My, a dream that I've had for a long time.
3: In total 19 people applied for the program since it launched 16 months ago, 11 applicants received an offer from the city. Perlman was one of three people who accepted. Some declined the award because they felt the legal documents and tax implications were too restrictive. Councilmember Tannatoli expressed surprise that only $600,000 had been used out of the initial $1 million allocation.
4: I thought you'd come in and say we need a lot more money, not that we have leftover money still.
3: Elise Katz, who led the program's committee, said it's taken other cities several years to get going. A real estate market with high interest rates and low inventory was also blamed for the slow rollout. Councilmember Ryan Dickey said the program offers great benefits, but questioned whether the city could be spending more wisely to increase affordable housing.
2: When I think of this could be 10 units in an an affordable development versus um, a few $200,000 deed restrictions, it gets tough to say this is the most important thing.
3: The council didn't support adding more money to the program. However, the city plans to continue processing applications for the remaining funds. Councilmember Ed Parisian was one outlier in full support of continuing the deed restriction program. He stressed the importance of home ownership versus affordable rentals. The council briefly discussed discussed a lease to locals program which pays property owners to move from short-term renting like Airbnbs to long-term renting for workers. The program has also been used in many mountain towns across the U.S., but no action was taken by the council Thursday. Parker Malatesta, KPCW News.
0: The Wasatch County Council meets tomorrow starting at 4 o'clock. On the phone with a meeting preview is County Manager Dustin Grebo. Good morning.
5: Good morning Leslie.
0: yeah so first off um, you told me you don't know a lot about this would be the consideration uh, the or consider the approval of the county's contract with the Bureau of Reclamation to include the Warren act in a portion of it so that the county can store water in the Jordan reservoir and I guess it's like none of the none of that water in the reservoir belongs to Wasatch County
5: well um, so this agenda item is under our SSA number one which is our Wasatch County Water Board um, there are multiple entities that store water in the Jordan El Reservoir, including the irrigation companies um, and, you know, Midway and many of the, the Heber Valley districts. So I imagine this is a, um, you know, a formality of a process because I think for many years since the creation of the Jordan Reservoir, all of those entities have utilized those waters. So, again, I don't, I don't know a whole lot about it. So I'm, I'm looking forward to the discussion on this item tomorrow.
0: Well. I looked it up because it's like what's the Warren Act and it says it's a federal statute that was passed back in 1911 basically allowing local water agencies to contract with federal agencies to store and to convey non-project water again we know that this is central Utah project water in federal reservoirs that do have excess capacities and I guess it's like any idea how much storage the county would need and how much it would like to have?
5: Um, so, the county itself doesn't administer any water rights. Um, we just set requirements for how much water developments must need in order to proceed. It's actually all of the irrigation companies. So those are the non-project water rights. Each of those irrigation companies had rights that pre-existed the creation of the Jordan L Reservoir. And so, like I said, I imagine this is a formality of a process to me that all the eyes are dotted and t's are crossed um, for those irrigation districts to preserve the, their access to that water.
0: All right, Um, you are looking to appoint a hearing officer for land use appeals. Why just one hearing officer?
5: Um, So recently we adopted changes to our code to comply with state code changes from last year. Um, We were required to adopt those as effective this month. And part of that change was we moved away from a board of adjustment Mm -hmm. to a hearing officer. And um, we actually only received two applicants we typically only get maybe two or three appeals to that entity a year. Um, and so the we did think of consider appointing both of the applicants to it, but because we receive so infrequent appeals, we thought it would be unfair to um, someone to say, yes, you're going to award it to you, but then we're never going to use you. Um, so we thought we'll just stick with one for now. And if we feel like we have a need, we'll, we'll solicit for additional, um, hearing officers.
0: Okay. And I want to just note that park city municipal just put a three person appeals panel into place recently. And I guess, I think they did that because, um, I mean, any concern on your part that one person has too much power. I mean, I mean, it could possibly be bought off. Um, well, I mean, this is a pretty common practice around the state. Heber
5: city currently uses a single hearing officer and many other entities do as well. The, the reality is that many of the issues that go before a board of adjustment or a hearing officer are relatively objective. There are legal basis for the arguments. And, um, I think that a lot of it is relatively clear. There's also an appeal process above those entities to state courts. Um, And so I think in general, we're excited to be able to have someone with a legal background be able to step into this role and provide that objective feedback. I think they probably would take issue with the accusation that maybe they would be somehow unduly influenced in their decision making process. And ultimately, if the county felt like there was some kind of untoward activity or unfair opinions being given we would make a change in that process and um want to make sure honestly i think this change makes it better than what we had before where we previously had lay members who we we genuinely appreciated the perspective but there was always a risk that they didn't understand some of the legal nuances of of an appeal or um what the issues before them were
0: okay Uh, finally a public hearing on the uh, agenda on a recommendation of an industrial protection area advise advisory board what would this board do
5: so this was a request that Wasatch County received from the um, Heber Valley sewer district Um, they are looking to preserve some property around the sewer farm so this is where where sewage from portions of the valley go to be treated and then um, you know re- readmitted back into um, the water system. So what the industrial protection area would do is afford additional protections that would prevent kind of nuisance lawsuits and make his ear to avoid less credible concerns against the sewer farm and the sewer district. Um, and that this is part of the process of adopting those code changes.
0: Okay um, last week the council got an update on transit. Um, with the news that 6,000 homes will eventually be built along the Jordanell Ridge area, does the county have a choice but not to expand its transit offerings?
5: Um, I, I think if, and if anyone listened to that discussion, I think you'll you'll see that there is a really strong demand for expanded service. And honestly, we will be able to do that as our revenue sources grow. But currently, we only have one out of five transit taxes available and we just don't have additional funding for rapidly expanded service right now. Something would have to grow kind of organically and slowly over time, or the council would have to, the community would have to approve additional uh, revenue sources to pay for those transit services. So I think there's demand for expanded service. It really just comes down to the policy choice of, is this worth imposing additional sales tax to cover?
0: Yeah, so what's the feeling of the council, is it?
5: I think there is an appetite to make sure that we have adequate transit service. I think this is, you know, nothing's going to be a silver bullet for solving traffic. But I think this is one piece in the puzzle of how we make sure we preserve our quality of life in Wasatch County. And um, so I think there's general support. I think the council is interested in being careful. So we're hoping to actually talk in next month about some of the options of which transit taxes are available, what the impacts would be. AND um, WHAT THOSE FUNDS WOULD BE USED FOR. Mm
0: -hmm. WELL, uh, Wasatch COUNTY EVENTUALLY HAVE TO HAVE ITS OWN TRANSIT DISTRICT, OR DOES IT JUST MAKE FINANCIAL SENSE TO KEEP PAYING HIGH VALLEY TRANSIT TO DO THIS?
5: WELL, OUR INTENT, SINCE WE CONTRACTED WITH HIGH VALLEY TRANSIT, WAS TO LOOK INTO FORMALLY ANNEXING AND JOINING HIGH VALLEY TRANSIT. RATHER THAN DUPLICATE THE EFFORTS AND HAVE, YOU KNOW, uh, EXTRA OVERHEAD COSTS, WE WERE HOPING TO TAKE ADVANTAGE OF OPPORTUNITIES OF SCALE. High Valley Transit has already demonstrated a lot of success, objective success, and we're hoping to be able to just join in with them. In order to do that, we actually need to adopt two additional portions of transit sales tax. This is part of the code in both state and local code that requires the structure of the district to be created kind of this way. Mm -hmm. So what we're hoping to do is is annex into High Valley Transit, have the whole county be a part of, of it. That would grant Wasatch County a seat on the board and then additional funding to provide expanded service connections down to, for instance, Utah County and and stronger connections to Park City.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, if lines are run to Provo County, then uh, High Valley Transit actually becomes a three-county district, huh?
5: Potentially, I think think one way or the other, there is a need for a connection down to Utah County, to Wasatch County, especially with the opening of um, Deer Valley's East Village. I think we're gonna need to bring workers and, others to come up to that area and into Wasatch County as well.
0: Yeah, and you, you mentioned that it would take uh, approve the approval of two more transit like taxes to formally annex into High Valley Transit. Uh, what else would be required? Is that it?
5: Um, so there is a, a, a process, the outline and code that um, basically allows the county to opt into the district, setting the boundaries of that and then allowing residents the opportunity to protest that annexation if they feel like it doesn't align with their priorities.
0: All right, um, and I forwarded you to an email uh, an email that uh, the station had received about dam failure. This is a group called Justice for All, asking will the Jordan dam fail as a tsunami of snowmelt floods out of the mountains? Um, the Jordan one of about 240 Utah dams classified according to this report as high hazard um, that is defined as a dam whose failure will cause the loss of human life and significant property destruction. Um, what we know and I remember reporting on this back in the day, um, a former geologist Leon Hansen was very concerned about the construction of the Jordan um, It's built on a fault line. So what about you? Are you concerned?
5: Um, so overall, no. The Jordan Hill Dam is one of the more recent dams created in Utah. It's a federally monitored dam. Um, the Bureau of Reclamation has a responsibility to check on its status. And while it's a high risk, as classified by the risk of if it fails, the damage it will cause, I believe it's a very safe dam. Um, and and I think that without it, Wasatch County would not be able to provide water at the, I think, consistent level that all of our residents and farmers expect.
0: All right, well, how often do we know that that dam does get inspected?
5: Um, I believe it's under constant monitoring. They have monitors, and and this is true of many of the dams in Wasatch County, that they, they install monitors within the dam itself so they can check the status of it, and that if there are failures, they make projections for it. And we're currently dealing with an issue in some areas where they may have to close dams at times, the nice thing is the Jordanal Reservoir dam itself doesn't have a road across it. So it wouldn't have a whole lot of impacts if they did decide to close and improve that dam. Um, but I think overall, it's, it was well designed, well planned. There was a lot of care put into it. And while, yes, there is a risk of earthquakes, it was designed to withstand, uh, I believe, a 7.5 magnitude earthquake on the Wasatch Front or a 6.5 here locally. Um, and I think even if it does fail, failure doesn't necessarily mean some kind of catastrophic failure it could just um you know be something that helps to identify improvements that need to be made there
0: okay justin anything else you wanted to mention not this morning okay thanks so much thank you just dustin grayball again is the manager of wasatch county on the phone now with an update from the utah state legislature i have KUR reporter sage Miller. good morning sage Good morning, Leslie, how are you? Doing great, thanks. So let's get a status update. What's the latest on the liquor law changes that would allow more liquor licenses here in the state?
6: Oh, absolutely. So this is a really big bill. It's the ominous bill. They do it every year and it covers a lot of ground. They uh, they they introduced it to the rules, rules Committee last week, so it still has a, quite a while before it makes its way to the House or Senate floor for debate. But it does do that one big thing, Leslie, is that it does decrease the population quota needed to hand out liquor license to full service bars or restaurants throughout the state. They want to decrease it from about 10,200 people to around 7,000 to 8,000 people instead. And specifically, the bill sponsor, um, Representative uh, Bur- uh, Jefferson Burton, really wants to kind of wants to strike this balance between ensuring that there's not a scarcity mindset around these liquor licenses, especially as the population continues to boom in Utah. But there are some caveats with this as well. If we are going to increase the amount of liquor licenses that the state will hand out to businesses, they want to create what is called a compliance officer, and they want to hire three of those. So essentially, they would ensure that everybody who has a liquor license in the state are following the rules and making sure that the liquor that they have available to patrons um, are actually within in state code and they also want to create a database for people who get DUIs so if they're leaving a bar, for example, um, and they get a DUI, that bar that they were leaving would be entered into a database to see if there was some kind of pattern among uh, restaurants or bars of where people are getting DUIs. I will say that this has happened in other states, and there hasn't really directly been a correlation. Specifically in Minnesota, they did the same thing, and they they didn't really necessarily see a pattern. But that's not going to stop the Utah legislature from ensuring what they would consider a safety protocol around the increase of access to alcohol. Additionally, this does expand the purchase of booze in an airport as well. So right now there are some, the only place where you can kind of like get up and walk around with alcohol is in uh, airline lounges, like the Delta Sky Miles lounge. So they would create other kind of uh, hospitality lounges where people could kind of walk around and not have to stay in one confined area in order to consume their alcohol. That would probably be in like a uh, American Express uh, lounge as well. Probably not walking around from terminal to terminal like you most likely can do in the Vegas airport. But the other thing that does in order to pay for these compliance officers is it's going to increase the tax on heavy beer, wine, and spirits that you buy in the liquor store by half a percent. So instead of an 88% markup, it's gonna be an 88.5% markup on liquor and wine, and then a 67% markup on uh, beer over 5%. So we do see a little bit of an increase in for the consumer when you go in. I don't know how much it's actually gonna be noticeable. It's only you know half a percent, but that is something that they're doing to recoup the cost of having to pay for these compliance officers. So they are trying to, you know, decrease or loosen up the liquor laws a little bit. And the other thing that they really want to do, and I don't think this is necessarily in the bill, but the bill sponsors have talked about this, is that one of the really hard things with liquor license is that you essentially have to be ready to open uh, before you're able to get one of them and they're very limited so that means you have to your doors need to be ready to open the next day the moment you get this liquor license and that can be really cost prohibitive for a lot of small businesses especially those who want to operate with alcohol so they're trying to maybe perhaps hope that the increase of liquor license available would make it so people have a little bit more lee- leeway before they can open up their business and you know, hit the ground running.
0: All right, let's move on to the uh, social media law changes, Senate Bill 194 and House Bill 464. Lawmakers are hoping that these uh, amendments will help the state survive any legal challenges?
6: Yes. So we know last year there were two sweeping social media laws, the first of its kind in the nation, that were really aimed at tackling what lawmakers and the governor would consider the harms of social media on youth. And SB 194 actually loosens those restrictions that were made from last year. So essentially, in order to verify somebody's age, to make sure that they were they were of age or you know don't need to have these specific restrictions on minors, they wanted you to upload your government ID, that got massive backlash from internet rights companies like NetChoice saying that actually uh, is a violation of the First Amendment because it prohibits the right to privacy. It would actually also allow uh, social media companies to collect more data that they aren't now by having to upload your government ID. So the big change to this bill is it says, you know, you actually don't need to upload your government issued ID in order to verify your age, but social media companies are going to have to find another way to ensure that my, who have access to these social media platforms have the necessary protections in there, but they don't need to do that via a government ID. And specifically, this lawsuit with TikTok has already gone, not gone through, but like it's already started, and NetChoice has sued the state over these social media bills, and so they're trying to essentially fix those privacy concerns, and so to make these lawsuits kind of a moot point. Additionally, this does move the deadline of when these bills go into effect, so they were supposed to go into effect next month, according to the effective date of last year when they wrote these bills, but now it's supposed to go in in May, but it does still limit when social media, when kids could access social media. So they, can access it, uh, they can't access it between the hours of 6 a.m. to 10, or 10.30 10 p.m. to 6 a.m., unless a parent overrides that and allows them. And then on HB 464, this one's a little bit tricky, and it does have a lot of nuance to it, but essentially it just reiterates that uh, parents have ground to sue social media companies if they believe that their content is harming their child. Um, whether they feel like they're addicted, they have body image issues, or the Content that they have on their for you page or whatever you want to call it um, is harmful to them. It also requires social media's uh, companies to have a different layout for Myers to make it a less addictive in some instances, or have different kind of content on their on their scrolly pages, on their for you pages uh, to make sure that it doesn't, I guess, doesn't harm their brain. Um, I will say that there is. There is some research to indicate that social media has a direct correlation to increase in suicidality or depression and anxiety, specifically among teenage girls or in the teenage population in general. The CDC report that a lot of lawmakers are referring to does not directly link uh, social media companies to the increase in these, these harms among children. Uh, but that's a strong argument that the legislature is making, and they say, you know, if the federal government isn't going to take any steps to curtail social media companies and put some guardrails around how they can access children then the state will so they're still ironing out some kinks and they're kind of just like throwing noodles out the wall to see what sticks and they did that uh some some privacy uh some privacy neutrality companies push back and so now they're trying to iron out those kinks to avoid some lawsuits
0: Okay, the news yesterday that Utah State School Board member Natalie Klein is not resigning and is, in fact, running for re-election, that after shaming a high school student in her district. She was censored by the legislature, not impeached. So she's got some thick skin moving ahead here, huh?
6: Oh, absolutely. So, and this was kind of an interesting move on the legislature's part because you heard the governor, the lieutenant governor, you had Kara birkeland the sponsor of the bill that essentially Natalie Klein was referring to, calling on Natalie Klein to resign from the school board. And she says that she's not going to do that. They did censure her, which is essentially just saying like, hey, we don't like your actions, we condemn them, but that's about it. They, they did made no big move to remove her, from the Utah school board, which means that she still has the eligibility to run for reelection. If they did impeach Natalie Klein, that would make her ineligible to run for reelection. But they didn't take that hardline stance. And it's still a little unclear as to why they did that, why the Utah legislature didn't make those moves. Essentially what the governor Cox said last week during a monthly news press conference with reporters is that the move that the Utah school board did to censure her essentially remove her from committees, not allow her to make amendments, not allow her to present bills was an impeachment in and of itself. It kind of signaled that. However, it doesn't stop Natalie Klein from running for reelection, which she's already said that she is going to do. She is not going to resign. Governor Cox said, the good thing, the right thing, the best thing for Natalie Klein to do would be to step down from her position. But I mean, Natalie Klein has kind of been a firebrand on the Utah school board. She's not afraid to say controversial issues and she's not necessarily scared of that backlash either. So it makes sense in, I guess, a political sense for Natalie Klein not to back down just because a different authority figure is telling her to. However, it will make for a pretty high profile and most likely contentious school board election uh, in that district in Salt Lake County, which she does have an opponent to. So, And we also know that Lieutenant Governor and other Utah lawmakers like uh, Senator Mike McKell and the Governor have all... Uh, donated to Natalie Klein's uh, uh, opponent in the race so far so while a lot of people aren't paying a bunch of attention to Utah school boards this probably will have a good amount of eyes on it especially because national outlets have picked up the actions of Natalie Klein um, and her her sly accusation of a female athlete being trans when they are not Um, and so that's that's kind of where we're at with it. Natalie Klein did essentially try and argue that the Utah legislature uh, or the Utah school board was breaking um, election laws by trying to censure her 60 days out of the election. We got word from Lieutenant Governor's office and from county clerks that that is completely false, that there was nothing stopping the Utah school board from being able to censure her. It was all within their legal right to do so. And that's, it's some drama, but there's been drama with Natalie Klein since she entered the school board. So at some point this just becomes the status quo and it all comes down to see if if she's reelected by her constituents or if they decide to replace her on the board.
0: Okay, we have just a few minutes left, but uh, I did want to get to this. The, the plan for the Great Salt Lake was released last month, so what's that going to do? And I guess more importantly, how much is it going to cost?
6: So, yeah, oh, this is a huge huge plan made by the the great salt lake commissioner which was established during last legislative session so brian steed who is also the executive director of the institute of land water and air at utah state university compiled this 42 page manifesto essentially talking about everything that needs to happen within the next 30 years to save the lake and some of them you know, don't cost a lot of money, like water conservation. And Utah lawmakers have thrown money to essentially incentivize uh, constituents or, you know, Utahns to, you know, rip out their thirsty grass in order for water in, in replace of water-wise landscaping or changing Utah water law to allow Great Salt Lake to hold water rights so people could donate that water to the ailing lake. But there are some other kind of issues at play, too, like dust. You There's there's hundreds of square miles of acres. It's 100 square miles of exposed lake bed that produces this really nasty dust. And we aren't completely sure what's in it, but we know that it's toxic. And the and, uh, Utah legislative audit conduct that was conducted showed that it would cost like millions of dollars to try and do dust mitigation and so brian steed the commissioner said the best course of action specifically with dust which he says is going to be the number one problem moving forward with the lake is that we just need to put more water in it we just need more water to the lake and that will help suppress the dust that is going to be the largest issue moving forward without that mitigation efforts could reach the millions and even the billions but along with this as well is that they're looking at short-term medium-term and long-term plans the short-term is conservation the the medium-term plan is how can we kind of sifle water to the lake and then I think a long-term plan is something kind of outlandish to a lot of people which is you know building a pipeline or piping or importing water from either the Pacific Ocean or neighboring states to Great Salt Lake. And what Brian Steed said with that is that with importing water, we just don't know where that water would come from. You look around the desert west, you even look to the Pacific Northwest, and water is an incredibly precious resource that people are incredibly protective over. So convincing somebody to hand over that resource that is so finite, is a pretty tough sell and we don't know how much money that would cost but we do know that estimates with a pipeline for example even from the sea of cortez which is in the gulf of mexico to the salton sea which is another sailing lake within the california area in the southern california area would also cost billions of dollars so we can't even begin to fathom how much money it would cost to pipe ocean water up some mountains up a lot of elevation and through multiple states to our favorite salty lake so there are you know brian steed is hopeful that we can find ways to save this lake that is based off conservation and other kind of overhaul of utah water law measures before we look to other states for their resource of water
0: okay a couple more weeks stay strong oh i appreciate it leslie (laughs) we Uh would try okay thanks sage in the studio now with an update from Recycle Utah of Executive Director Carolyn Warr. Good morning. Good morning, Leslie. Um, let's talk about last year. Sure. Busy. Yeah,
4: yeah. it was kind of a weird year. Um, year over year numbers are down a little bit. They're down about five percent down. But in kind of the waste recycling world, that's not nothing alarming. And you know, big thing I want to stress with numbers like this is there's so many external factors at play. You know, what were what was the economy like? How much were people consuming? How much were people buying? Where were they? What were their habits like? A lot of things are out of our control, you know? Um, So we're just here to collect what people consume. And if people aren't consuming as much, our numbers could be down. Um, And I do think that the record snowfall we had last, you know, last early winter also affected things. You know, if you can barely get out of your driveway to load up your car to come to the recycle center, might not be top of your list. Um, I do know there were some challenges with with Republic and I don't know their numbers either, you know, For example, in 2022, um, Republic reported about um, 3,300 tons of the curbside recycling and we were just um, about um, 1,700 tons. Okay. Wait, am I? Yeah.
0: Yeah. So... um... I'm also going to say though that people couldn't get their trash cans out. Yeah, totally. I know. I think.
4: I um, I did think about bringing Tim Loveday from Summit County on to have this conversation together. And if you guys do a follow-up story, I would encourage you to call him to see what the big picture is like. I do know that Three Mile Canyon landfill, that's municipal solid waste landfill. Their numbers were about even year over year. Um, So what trash went into the landfill in our community was about even, um, which kind of matches up with us being slightly down. Um, and I'm glad to see it was slightly even, you know, if it'd gone way up, then I would worry about, you know, the, the issues we had getting recycling, you know, taken care of properly in the first six months of last year. Um, you know, comparing the first six months of our year to the last six months, the last six months were definitely higher numbers than the first six months. Um, in total, we recycled about 3,350,726 pounds to be very exact, which comes out to about 1,675 tons. Um, the biggest areas that were down for us, um, glass was down about 75,000 pounds and then cardboard was about slightly down about 90,000 pounds. Um, glass is, we made a lot of changes in our glass program. We had four remote glass recycling bins and we brought that down to two. And I think in seeing these numbers, it shows us we probably need to go back and re-educate on how that program works. You know, there are still three great options for glass in our community. Um, you can bring it to the Jeremy ranch park and ride. There's a brown bin there. Um, the triumph gear station, it's kind of, um, near the home depot roundabout, um, near the the gas station out there. There's an option there. You can bring it to our center. And I worry that, you know, changes in that programs, unsettled things a little bit, um, for that program. So I would encourage people to get your glass recycling done. I feel like it's a very easy thing to recycle in this community. You know, you have your. In your garage or whatever, you have your curbside bin, you have your psycho Utah bin, your psycho Utah bin. If you're like me, it's mostly glass and um, cardboard sometimes. So, um, and glass does not go in your curbside container. You're not an special exception. This is true for everybody in the Wasatch Front and the Wasatch Bath. There is no sorting facility that will sort our glass. So, glass needs to be sorted if you're going to be a glass recycler. So that's a little mention of glass and the cardboard down number um really with the volumes of cardboard we do that's like less than 20 bales of cardboard it's just not something we're going to spend a lot of time Mm -hmm. talking about why it happened it just was you know last year the unique snowfall was really something that you know was a challenge for the waste and recycling world and to see our numbers where they're at is probably reflective of things we
0: saw then okay uh you have a new educator on board we do um
4: many of you know mary clauser she's been our longtime full-time educator. Um, We're finally bringing on someone to help Mary a bit. Um, Her name is Chelsea. She's part-time working with Mary Which will probably get us to another 30% more students this year when we finish out the year Um, If you have kids in the school district, maybe at Mcpollin Parley's or Ecker Hill um, She's probably seen you already. We've seen already this year since start of January about 1270 kids so far. So um, we teach all different levels of you know, um, Utah core curriculum, kind of along with the sciences, we have a new lesson about mining, which is very unique and specific to Park City, and also something new that they put into Utah's core curriculum to align with, you know, some state and federal standards about teaching kids about natural resources and how things work and how we rely on the earth and our relationship with the earth. So if you have kids in any of those schools, I'd check and see if they saw Miss Mary and Miss Chelsea lately.
0: Yeah. So what's the mining lesson? Do you know?
4: Um, it's kind of about Park City's history in mining. Um, it starts there and then expands to how we mine for things like batteries for electric vehicles, like lithium mining. How, you know, mining is a part of having a more green, you know, ecosystem marine line on different fossil fuels than the ones we've known, you know, oil, coal, gas, um, things, new fossil fuels and how things are changing. So we're right. kind of going through a big change. And it's fun to bring the kids along with, you know, how Park City started and how the rest of the world is going right now.
0: Yeah, I mean, we often talk about the mining legacy and that basically is kind of the environmental cleanup that we're dealing with.
4: Exactly, you know, yeah, yeah, and that's happening all over the world with how we're mining for lithium and copper and everything we need to make like batteries for electric vehicles now.
0: Okay, and then you also have uh, some adult education as well. We do, um, If um, we've already reached about
4: 155 adults. Um, we do staff trainings in the schools. We have um, a green drink series that I'll mention before the end of the show and then a green business lunch and learn. So we've been doing a lot of those. Um, If you have a group, you know, if you have a book club, you have a group of friends that gets together, neighborhood HOA, and you'd like us to come talk about recycling do's and don'ts or a specific topic, um, we're happy to do so. Just reach out to us, call us at the center. You can email us um, at mary at
0: Okay, you're gonna be headed to uh, the senior centers?
4: We are, we actually, um, I think we're giving the senior center a mining lesson as soon as next week or something. So they're definitely on our list. I think we're working with newcomers group, but um, they're pretty booked up for a while. So we'll probably see them in the fall. Um, We have a plan to go to the lunch rotary club. So um, we're a little more flexible on what we teach adults. We kind of work the adults, what they wanna learn. Whereas the kids, we stick pretty strong towards Utah Utah core curriculum and then the age, you know, uh, kindergarten is not going to learn about climate change. They're going to use about, you know, recycling do's and don'ts and natural resources.
0: Okay. And save the date for the next green drink.
4: Yep. Our green drinks have been selling out. So if you're interested, I encourage you to visit our website and sign up on Eventbrite. Um, The next one is Tuesday, March 12th from six to eight at Fulfilled. Um, We're going to talk about plastics. Uh, Kimberly Floors, um, one of the owners of Fulfilled Lifestyle Company, is going to talk about, you know, plastics in your home, how to, you know, when you're heating up your dinner maybe you probably shouldn't put it in a plastic bowl in the microwave maybe you should put on a glass bowl instead kind of at your home how you can reduce your plastics and then we'll have mike lures talk about microplastics, nanoplastics and micro rubbers if you've never heard mike talk about plastics and water it's a little frightening conversation but definitely good information to be aware of and i always appreciate the way mike delivers information in a way normal people can understand
0: And then finally, you do have a couple of other upcoming events that you want people to put on their calendar for Earth Day.
4: Yep, we're moving Earth Day to Twisted Fern this year. Um, Adam Ross is on our board and he offered to host it for us. We'll be at Twisted Fern on Earth Day itself, Monday, April 22nd from 5 to 8 p.m. Tickets will go on sale about a month from now, so keep an eye out for that. And then I have been getting some questions. um, Summit County Household Hazardous Waste Day is April 27th. I know some people have kind of started to think about spring cleaning, you know, if the epic Pass is blacked out of the weekend, you're going to clean out your garage. So put, um, April 27th on your calendar for that date.
0: Okay. Anything else you want to mention? No. Nope. Thanks for your time. Okay. Thank you. Carolyn Moore is the executive director of Recycle Utah. Cowboy poetry is no more, but as KPCW's Grace Dorfler reports, one local teacher has a way to fill that void and to highlight local heritage.
7: Wasatch County Councilmember Mark Nelson has pitched a new event he says will bring the Heber Valley together. Heritage Days would be an annual event in late September, focused on the community's pioneer and cowboy roots, as he described to the County Council Wednesday. Nelson, who's also the Executive Director of the Heber Valley Historic Railroad, says this fall marks 125 years since the first train arrived in Heber, an opportune moment to launch the event.
2: The weather's usually still good enough to do things outside without cover. And um, the end of September is a very historical thing. when the first train came to Heber, it was the end of September in 1899.
7: Activities would include a reenactment of the train's arrival, an old fashioned community feast, storytelling with Heber Valley old timers, barn dancing and a fishing competition in the Provo River. He hopes the volunteer run event would also receive support from local governments and organizations like the Chamber of Commerce and the Heber Valley Heritage Foundation. Here's Michael Moulton, the CEO of the Heritage Foundation.
2: We don't have very many historic buildings left, but we do have a whole bunch of historic heritage stories that is well worth preserving. And we're happy to have all the new people come, but we would like to have them build upon our foundation so that it doesn't change. And this idea of marks, I think, is a marvelous idea.
7: Councilmember Steve Farrell asked that any event be focused on locals rather than tourists. He gave the example of a similar festival in Emory County that featured a reenactment of local history.
0: It's a kind of a play type thing. You know, they had people pass away, and it it was quite a uh, heart wrenching story. But then when it was over, you felt good because those that survived made a go of it.
7: He proposed using the funds that previously went to Cowboy Poetry to start up the event. Heber Valley Chamber Executive Director Don Kocher said he'll research options to make Nelson's idea a reality. The County Council will discuss Heritage Days again during its March work meeting.
0: Grace Dorfner, KPCW News. Well, Save People, Save Wildlife, a local nonprofit focused on reducing vehicle wildlife collisions, is lobbying Park City leaders ahead of the annual Council Retreat. A 2019 Utah Department of Transportation study found that the State Route 224 ranks fifth in the state for the most vehicle wildlife collisions. Just last month, elk herds near the road caused traffic delays during the Sundance Film Festival as police made sure no animals were hit. Save People Save Wildlife President Aaron Ferguson told the Park City Council last week that there is strong support for the municipality to help build more wildlife infrastructure. So we've raised over $258,000 to date in supporting uh, supporting this
4: cause. The community wants safe passage for wildlife on SR 224. They want it to be a priority for Park City. The passion of the community indicates a call to action. We have hundreds of letters indicating concerns for wildlife safety, connecting the surrounding areas of open space we've set aside, concerns about road widening, and the need to address these concerns now.
0: She said federal funds are available for wildlife crossings as part of a massive infrastructure bill that Congress passed in 2021. Park City Council member Bill Scirocco is on the Save People, Save Wildlife Board. He says the city should consider applying for that federal program.